Matthew chapter number 11 this evening, and I'd like to begin reading at verse number 20. We'll read down to verse number 24. The Word of God says, Then began He to upbraid the cities wherein most of His mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the time that you've given us. Lord, help us to use it wisely. Father, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, that you'd do in our midst that which would bring you glory. Lord, we're trusting you. We thank you for the services we had this morning. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to be surrendered as he reveals your will for our lives to us. Help us to be surrendered that you might have liberty in our lives. Father, we love you this morning. We thank you for it and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In Matthew chapter number 11, we have a principle that is set forth. Uh, I want to read to you another portion of Scripture just very quickly, just a couple verses, that I believe sets forth this principle. But you have to understand what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. In upbraiding these cities that he mentions, and he mentions three of them. He mentions Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, Chorazin and Bethsaida were sort of suburbs of Capernaum. And so, in a sense, though the Lord is distinguishing these three places, he is speaking to the geographical area that belongs to Capernaum. It was the chief city in that area. And you have to understand that literally what the Lord is about to do is turn away from these cities and cease ministering in them any longer. There is a long-storied history between our Savior and Capernaum. We know that Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. But very shortly after, He called the disciples into ministry, was baptized of John. He left Nazareth and began to set up shop, so to speak, in the city of Capernaum. And uh, for many, many months he's been ministering, he's been working. You know, it's hard for us to fathom sometimes because we only have just a snippet of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, John said this, that if the books were written, if everything that the Lord Jesus Christ did in that three and a half year period were to be written down, that the world could not contain the books. And you say, preacher, do you believe that? Oh, I absolutely believe that. I absolutely believe that. We have just a handful of miracles mentioned in the Word of God, in the ministry of Christ. And here preachers been preaching about it now for 2,000 years, and there ain't no end in sight except for the coming of the Lord. And uh, we can keep preaching on them, and keep preaching on them, and keep preaching on them. We'll never sound the depth of them. Those are just the ones that the Lord, in His wisdom, chose to bless us with. If every single person, when the Bible says multitudes would come to Him, and He'd heal them, I mean, He'd spend all day in a place just healing people that would come to Him. And so if, the, if everything was written down that the Lord did, the books couldn't contain it. And so he has spent a long amount of time in Capernaum, but they have not received the Word of God. They have received the blessings of God. They have received the miracles of God, but they have rejected the Word of God. 
Let me say that, uh, you know, it's easy to receive the blessings of the Lord. You know that the Lord's the one that brings rain down on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's easy to receive the blessings of the Lord. It's easy to receive uh, the miracles of the Lord. I know lots of people that the Lord works miraculously in, in their life. We believe in miracles around here. I can't make a miracle happen. I can't do a miracle. I'm not capable. These hands have no uh, healing power or no miraculous power. They're no different than your hands. Uh, I bite my nails. They might be a little uglier, amen. But uh, but I do believe the Lord is working very much in humanity today. And I, 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 we've seen it in our church life. And I believe He's able, when it's within His will... Uh, to perform great thing in the, things in the midst of His people. But it's easy to accept that. But now to accept the Word of God, that's a whole other story. The Word of God, it's easy to accept when it's something that tells us how much the Lord loves us. But it's not easy to accept the Word of God when it shows us how little we love the Lord. When it shows us the standard that God expects us to live according to. And so they have rejected the Word of God. They have rejected the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is literally washing his hands of these cities. And in so doing, he sets forth a principle concerning the day of judgment. And he makes this astonishing statement. He says concerning Chorazin and Bethsaida in verse 22, he says, But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And Tyre and Sidon were Gentile pagan cities. And he says concerning Capernaum in verse 24, now this is astounding, but I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Now those are astounding statements that the Lord makes. But as we apply them to our lives tonight, I think the thing that we need to understand is this principle, and I want you to listen carefully, and then I'm going to give you a text verse for it, and then I'm going to give you a few things, and then we're going to go eat cake. Amen, that sound good? The principle is this, what is received determines what is required and what is reckoned. Or could I maybe say it this way, that what is received determines the degree concerning what is required and will determine one day what is reckoned. I have people ask all the time, well, are there degrees of sin? I I promise you right now, I mean, if, if you want to get in a fist fight in a Baptist church, ask the question, are there degrees of sin? Because you'll have people in the same little section. You'll have people sitting four foot apart. They didn't know they hated each other until it was time to talk about that. And then all of a sudden they'll realize they disagree on it. Let me give you a Bible answer. That's what we want, isn't it? We want the Bible answer, don't we? What does the Bible say? Christ said this concerning the Pharisee, Ye tithe and mince and cumin, and ye neglect the weightier matters of the law. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ said. Now, that's not to say that sin's not sin. Sin is sin. All sin is disgusting uh, to the heart and mind of God. It's all a stench in the nostrils of God. But by the same token, we find there are certain things that God just says, I am especially offended at. And I'd say there's no question, you read the Bible, that there are degrees of sin. I think anybody that's carnal enough to try to say, well, my sin's better than your sin or anything, hey, they don't have the heart of God. They've not read the Word of God. They wouldn't be proud of any of their sin because it's all rotten. It's all rotten. But there's no question in the Word of God. He said that there are weightier matters of the law. Uh, But let me say that our judgment concerning sin is not just determined by the intrinsic nature and weight of those matters. But rather, this principle is exercised. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. The Lord's telling a parable here, but listen to the truth that's given. 
The Word of God says, And that servant which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. Now listen to how God gives this principle. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. You see, our accountability to the Lord Jesus Christ is measured not just uh, by the weight and the intrinsic nature of these matters, but also about the amount of light and truth that we've been privileged with. Let me tell you something. It's easy sometimes to look uh, from inside. And I, and I don't mean to say anything disrespectful about our, our country. Uh, I wouldn't say it on any day, especially Memorial Day. But it's, it's easy sometimes to look with American eyes out into the pagan darkness that is uh, drawn over like a veil uh, in many countries in this world and say to ourselves, oh, those poor pitiful people, uh, boy, aren't we blessed to live here. And we are blessed to live here. Let me say that with all the blessings of God that our country enjoys, there's a lot of accountability too. We have more than we've ever had. We have more Bible preaching, more Bible teaching. I understand that the days are short. I understand evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse. And I understand people are heaping to themselves teachers having itching ears. But listen to me, uh, we have more capability. We have more access. We have more at our disposal today uh, than the church has ever had in her entire storied history. Uh, we have uh, so many uh, capabilities to get the gospel out, uh, to reach people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to learn of the Word of God, to gain from the Word of God. I'm saying this, you and I, we've been given a lot, so there's going to be a lot required of us. And you and I, born in this part, I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're not just in the Bible Belt, we're in the buckle. You can, you can go out into our parking lot, throw a rock, and you'll hit four or five Baptist churches. Uh, there's so many Baptist churches down here, people just fuss and argue because they don't even know why. They just might as well, Amen. And uh, I understand that it's hard to find good preaching. I understand it's hard to find uh, good churches sometimes. But understand this, we also have grown to a pretty picky place. And uh, we can go to a place, and if we don't like every little thing about it, we can say, well, I'll go to the one down the road. It's part of living in this part of the country. And I'm not fussing. I'm just merely saying we're blessed with a lot of things where we live. Blessed with a lot of things. None of us had to go through checkpoints to get to church tonight. We're not here meeting under cover of darkness and uh, under secrecy to try to keep from being hauled off to prison. I'm saying God's been awful good to us, and there's going to be a lot required of us. The astonishing truth that the Lord gives to these cities is that the cities in history that they have looked at with such disdain and such a sense of self-righteousness will, in fact, because of their lack of light be in a better condition one day than they will on the day of judgment. There's a lot of things we don't understand about the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. I'm aware of that. But let me say this. One of the things that I think we always struggle to get a grasp on is this. That day when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to have a lot to answer for. And things are going to look a lot different on that day than they look on this day. Paul only spoke about two days in his life. Did you ever notice that? He spoke about today, the day he was living in. He always talked about today and doing things today and serving the Lord today and getting it done today. And then he'd talk about that day. 
And when he talked about that day, he was talking about that day when he'd stand accountable before the Lord and give an account for the things that he had done in his body. And Paul said this concerning that day. He said, for we must all stand before the, or appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul understood he had been blessed in a lot of ways. God had shown a lot of mercy on him in his life. And I'll get to preaching here in a moment. i just got to say what God's placed on my heart. But understood this, that so many of the things that he did, he did it in ignorance and unbelief, and so God showed mercy on him. But he understood this, that after God showed mercy on him and God saved him, he had the greater accountability because of the things that he had been blessed with in his life. Growing up at the feet of some of the greatest teachers of Old Testament rabbinical truth that had ever lived, a man that was able to speak several different languages, had dual citizenship at least as a Jew and also as a Roman, had an open door to go and present the gospel. He said that the love of Christ constraineth me and I am a debtor both to the Greek and to the barbarian. He understood this. God's given this boy a lot, so he's going to expect a lot out of him. And it may be, friend, that one of these days when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, And we point to all the good things that we have done. The Lord Jesus Christ might just look to all the good things that we could have done and say to us, you know, you missed a lot of opportunities. A lot of opportunities. Well, there are a few things that are mentioned in these verses, and I just want to give them to you very quickly. But I want to follow sort of that pattern because I think it's easy to remember that what is received determines what is required and what is reckoned. Now, don't misunderstand me when I say that. There are certain things that are expected out of anywhere. The Bible says that God calleth all men everywhere to repent. And uh, I'm not meaning to say that right and wrong and, and morality and spirituality is a relative thing. Don't misunderstand me. But what I am saying is this, that you and I living in this country, living in this day, uh, living in the church age that we live in, there's a lot expected out of us, and it's because of the things that we've received and the things that we've seen. And I want you to notice, first off, some things that these cities had received. Now, again, if you were to go through and just search the word Capernaum in the Word of God, you'd find that it pops up quite a few times in the gospel. Sometimes it's parallel accounts, but most of the time it's not. The reason is because of the time that the Lord spent in this city working and ministering and moving. Now, I want to say first off that the city of Capernaum had received, first and foremost, the presence of the Lord. Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came, and listen to this, and dwelt in Capernaum. Capernaum had enjoyed uh, the continuous presence of the Lord, His ministry and His working in a way that no other city had and in a way that probably no other city ever will have until the new Jerusalem sits down on this earth. They had been blessed with the presence of God moving and working and ministering in their midst. Let me say that the greatest thing that the church can long for is the presence of God. God won't bless a place with His presence unless things are right. That's that and say unless they're perfect. Uh, I mean, Lord knows that around here we're far from perfect, amen? And I mean that seriously when I say the Lord knows that. He does know that. Uh, but I mean, unless things are right, the Lord won't bless a place with His presence. Uh, the Lord will not sit down on a place and move and work and minister unless a place is right. But the Lord had shown mercy upon Capernaum. And in His earthly ministry, the Lord had reached out to them and tried to do something. They had tasted of the presence 
of the Lord. That's a great and grand privilege. Let me say that you and I in this day that we live in, we've been blessed with the presence of the Lord in a way that, that others have never experienced. Well, you know, sometimes, I, I and I understand, I get it, man. I mean, I look back and I think, boy, it would have been nice to be the disciples. Uh, we, yeah, I, I've got the feeling one day we're going to get to heaven and, and we're going to talk to the disciples. They're going to say, you know, it wasn't all this cracked up to be. <laughs> They're probably going to say, you know, uh, because we always look back and say, well, I would have done things different than them and I, would, I wish I could have seen this, I could have seen that. Uh, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says this. Christ was praying in the book of John chapter number 17. He was praying for those that had believed. And He said that He prayed for those that had believed because they had seen. But He said, I pray especially, Father, uh, for, uh, to, for those that believe through their Word. And uh, the Lord understood that it took, it took a special faith to believe without the miracles that accompanied the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you understand this, that Christ also said after He departed that men would go on to do greater things than even what He had done. Uh, we're blessed with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're blessed with a finished Bible. I mean, listen, we don't even understand the blessing that holding a finished Bible in our hands is. I mean, what, what a blessing to know that we have the Word of God and the presence of God in the Word of God. I'm saying there's a great accountability that comes with that. For hundreds of years, saints have, have smuggled and, and, and uh, secreted away copies, just pages of the Word of God, that they might have some little crumb of the bread of life. And you and I, we've got a completed Bible sitting gathering dust on our nightstand. I'm saying we have the presence of the Lord in a way grander than what Capernaum had. And that's what I want you to gain tonight. I don't want you to gain that me, that us and Capernaum were pretty similar. I want you to understand that the way Capernaum was blessed more than Sodom and Gomorrah is the way that America's blessed more than Capernaum was. I'm saying we've seen the presence of God move in revival and move in a mighty way. Never has there been a country with an open door for the gospel in the way that America has for the length of time that America has had. And that door is still open in many respects with the presence of the Lord. Then I want you to notice, secondly, that Capernaum had experienced the power of the Lord. Now, I don't have time to take you to all these places, but let me give you three chapters where the Lord did something mighty in Capernaum. And some of them you're going to even remember as we mention them. Let me say that they had seen the power of the Lord to raise from disease. In Mark chapter number 2, you remember the palsied man born of four, don't you? The man that was brought to the Lord Jesus Christ when Christ was in the house and they could not get into the door because it was so packed. And so they tore the roof tiles off. They tore the uh, the leaves and the branches off of the roof and dug the mud away. Let the man down into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was in Capernaum. Uh, that was where they had seen that God was able to raise a man from a sick bed. They had seen not only that the Lord could raise from diseases, but they saw that He could release from demons. This morning we preached on the man in the synagogue in Capernaum. They had seen how that uh, even the demons were subject to his authoritative voice, to his power. His word was astonishing. His doctrine was with power. And they had seen that God was able, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver a man from darkness. And then in Luke chapter number 7, you remember the centurion's servant, don't you? Who lay at the point of death. It was in Capernaum that this man came to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, My servant is lying even at the point of death. 
You remember how the Lord commended His faith, said uh, uh, that uh, so great a faith have I not found in Israel, and so on and so forth. But it was in Capernaum that the Word of God was powerful enough uh, from even that long distance to speak and to heal the centurion's servant. Let me say that they had been able to see that the Lord was able to rescue from death. That even as his servant lay at the point of death, the Word of God was quick and powerful to move and to work and to intervene in that situation. I'm saying Capernaum knew what the power of God was. They had seen God move and work. And let me say that in America and in our country and in our city and in our state and in our church, we've seen the power of God. Listen, I want you to understand something. There's an accountability that goes with a lot of the things that we're blessed with. You understand that? I mean, we, you know, we talk all the time. This, I mean, this may spook some people, but you'll just have to get nervous, I guess, because I'm not going to be ashamed of things that the Lord does. But we, I mean, we have. We've seen God heal. Now, now, I, I don't, when I say seen Him heal, I don't mean we've had us a Benny Hinn service and smacked someone on the forehead. And I don't mean none of that nonsense, but I mean we as a church have prayed in obedience to James chapter number 5. We have exercised that spiritual exercise, and we have trusted the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And we've prayed. We've asked God to intervene. It's not always the will of God to heal, but when it is, He's fully capable to heal. And we've seen Him raise folks up out of sick beds. I mean, we've seen well, folks that should be dead. We should be visiting their graveside today, but they come church and sit with us. We've seen God do that. God's able to do that. Let me tell you something, church. There's an accountability for having God work in our midst like that. You better believe there's an accountability. We've seen God save folks. We've seen God take folks that were at the point where, I mean, they they were, if they had not come through the doors of this church, uh, they weren't long for this world because they were fed up and disgusted and sick of it. And they weren't going to last much longer. We've seen God save them and redeem them and change them. There's an accountability that comes with that church. I'm saying when, the, when, when God moves in our midst, and I say this with a heavy heart because, listen, if there's anybody that was raised with all the privileges, it's this boy right here. I was raised in a strong Bible church, a gospel preaching, gospel believing, but it didn't just stop at the gospel. They preached the whole counsel of God. Uh, they taught you the Word of God. They took a stand against sin. There's an accountability comes with that. I'm going to answer to God for every message that was ever preached in these ears. I'm going to answer to God for every, every work that God ever did that I was a part of or in the midst of. I'm saying there's an accountability there. And, and I wouldn't love you very much if I wouldn't warn you of that because the truth is we're all a part of that. We see God move and work. You better understand, my friend, God expects more out of you because of that. He expects more out of you. So they had seen the power of God. They had seen the presence of the Lord. They had seen the power of the Lord. But I want you to notice that they had heard the preaching of the Lord. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 4, verse 30 through 32. The Bible says, But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way, and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. There's an accountability where the preaching of the word of God is. Accountability. Listen, I know how it is that you wouldn't believe this, but preachers, I mean, they don't, sometimes they get bored in preaching too, right? I, I sit in church services, I, I sit in revival meetings, I go and I, and I, and a preacher has to do that, he has to sort of feed himself, he's got no one preaching to him, and so he has to make sure he's, he's in the midst of preaching. And I know what it is sometimes, just turn your ear off. I've been there, I've done that. But you better understand, my friend, just because you check out mentally, that don't mean your accountability is checked out. You're going to answer one day for the things you hear. 
I'm going to answer one day for the things that I preach and the things that I hear. What a privilege to hear the preaching of the Word of God. I don't just say that as a preacher. And I don't say that because I think I'm any kind of preacher because you know my heart better than that. I say that because we live in, in a country where you can throw a rock and find a preacher somewhere preaching the Word of God. I, I, it may not be the best. It may not be what we want. It may not be anything dynamic. But we can find preachers that preach truth. We can find preachers that preach truth. And we're going to answer for that one day. We tell the kids that every year at camp. Because, you know, kids are... I mean, it's amazing what camp does in a kid's life. Because uh, they come up and they're normal. I mean, as normal as kids are. You know? And then after a day or two, man, you, you can see God's trying to work, but the devil's trying to work too. And all of a sudden, I mean, kids that were laid back and everything, they're on edge, they're shaking. And then all of a sudden, when they give their, when either if they're lost, when they get saved, or if God's been dealing with them and they're already saved, when they give whatever it is that God's been dealing with them about over to the Lord, all of a sudden, man, there's a peace, there's a serenity. But I always tell the kids every year, listen, you're going to one day have to give an account for every word that you've heard this week. One of these days, you're going to stand before the Lord. He's going to ask you what you did with the preached Word of God. And I would just warn you tonight, church, one day you're going to give an account for what you do with the preached Word of God. Whether you simply look at it and say, oh, that's good, admire it, observe it, and then file it away somewhere for somebody else. Whether you look at it with scorn and disdain and say, Who's, uh, who are you and what right do you have? Or whether you merely just check out <laughs> and dismiss it and ignore it. Matters not. One day you'll give an account for the things that you've heard. So we see what is received. And then very quickly, I want you to notice what is required. God expected some things, and it can be summed up in one word. Can I give you that word? Some of you say, please do and hurry. The one word is the word repentance. Repentance. You say, what does God expect out of me when He convicts me? He expects repentance. He expects for you to acknowledge your sin, to confess your sin, and to forsake your sin. That's basically, in a nutshell, what repentance is. We have a 100,000 clever analogies about turning around and this, that, and the other. That's fine if that helps someone understand. But if you really want to know what repentance is, it is the sincere acknowledgement, confession, and forsaking of sin. That's what it is. The acknowledgement is say, yeah, Lord, you're right, I did sin. You know, a lot of Christians go through their whole life just trying to bluff the Lord and trying to pretend that what they're doing is not wrong. Let me tell you something. You can get all society to agree with you that your sin's okay, and that doesn't make it okay. They can make it legal. They can make it proper. They can make it acceptable. Uh, they can make it in vogue and in style, but sin is still offensive to the heart and mind of God. You can get everybody in the world to agree with you in your sin, but God won't agree with you. You've got to acknowledge it. You've got to call it what it is. It's sin. Then you've got to confess it. We all know the uh, technical definition, right? To agree with God about it. In other words, quit making excuses about it. And call it what it is. It's sin. God hates it and we ought to hate it. And the only part of us that, that doesn't hate it is the wicked and fleshly part of us. We ought to hate sin. I believe that's the reason that David was a man after God's own heart. It's not that he wasn't a sinner. It's not that he didn't make mistakes. But he hated his own sin. I believe if we'd hate our own sin, we'd be a person after God's own heart as well. And so to confess means to agree with God about it. You know what I try to make a practice of doing? I try to make it a practice in my prayer life when I confess sin to find the ugliest name for it that I can think of and to call it that before God. Because, you know, we have a tendency. I mean, we're awful. We're rough on others, but we're pretty easy on ourselves. 
And we'll say, well, you know, I mean, I wasn't trying to lie. I was just this and I was just that. My little boy makes me laugh. He, he, you wouldn't think, as, as young as he is, you wouldn't think he'd already back talk and give excuses. But he does. You can't tell what he's saying, but you can tell he's doing that. And uh, sometimes we'll, we'll get on to him. He'll, he'll be doing something. We'll say, Lawrence, snap my fingers. Don't get into that. And he'll turn around. And all you can understand is, I just. That is always clear. He'll say, I just, you know. And he's trying to give an explanation. That's what kids do. That's what big kids do too sometimes. And that's what we do in our lives. We'll say, Lord, I wasn't trying to sin. I just, uh, and we'll go down. No, call it what it is. And then we know what to forsake it is, right? We don't have to be no kind of rocket surgeon. <laughs> we know what that is, right? To forsake it. Turn away from it. To quit doing it. My wife's laughing at me. She thinks I did that on accident. I'm smarter than the average bear. And so the Lord asks repentance of them. What kind of repentance? Let me give it to you real quick. First off, an inward repentance. He says, because they repented not. Repentance is intrinsically an inward action at first. If you're not inwardly repentant, then your outward repentance means nothing. You know how the Word of God says it in the book of Hosea? It says, rend your hearts, not your garments. In other words, you can rend your garments. You can roll yourself in sackcloth and ashes. You can throw dust in the air. You can weep and cry. But if your heart is not right before God, God isn't interested in your false repentance. He said they repented not. He wanted an inward repentance. But then notice, secondly, he did want an outward repentance. You know what he said? He said, if Tyre and Sidon had heard the preaching you've heard, they would have repented long ago. And what did he say? In sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes. In other words, if those Gentile cities had received what you received, they would have turned from God in a mighty and public way. I believe in public repentance. Now, I, I don't, when I say that, I don't mean I expect you, every little thing that you do wrong, to get up before the church and confess it and, uh, you know, well, I had a, you know, impure thought about Miss So-and-so or I said something ugly about Brother So-and-so. And my goodness, friend, that tear a church in two in two weeks. But I do believe this. I believe that when we've sinned and done something wrong, we ought to be contrite over it. But because a uh, uh, broken and a contrite heart, the Lord will hear. And I believe we ought to get it out of our lives. We ought to take the steps necessary to ensure that those that we've hurt know that we know we hurt them and we know it was wrong. I believe this. Your sin usually includes a number of people, whether you like it or not. No man's sin is unto himself, is what Paul said. No man's sin is unto himself. Your sin always includes somebody, usually. And an outward repentance would be to go to them and say, Listen, I know I was wrong. I sinned. I may have gotten you in a mess, but that was wrong. I shouldn't have gotten you in a mess. And I sinned, and I'm sorry. And then an ongoing repentance. You know what he says about Sodom? He said, if Sodom had received... You know what Sodom? Sodom and Gomorrah? He said, if Sodom had received what you've received, Capernaum, they'd still exist today. They'd still exist today. And one of the things we know about God is this, that God doesn't tolerate sin. He may have mercy... And He may turn from His wrath, but if we turn back to sin, His holy nature requires that He deals with sin. The city of Nineveh is a good example of that, don't you think? You read in the book of Jonah, and God says, I want to have mercy on Nineveh, that great city. He sends Jonah. Jonah, uh, well, he tries to. Jonah finally winds up in Nineveh. He preaches the message of God. The Ninevites repent. You think, boy, that's a good story. I mean, they're really set now. 
And then 150 years later, the book of Nahum comes along. And God says, woe to that bloody city, and says that Nineveh will be destroyed. Just because God has repentance or, or has mercy at our repentance, that doesn't mean He won't come along and judge us later if we go back into that very same sin. So the very fact that the Lord says this, if Sodom had received this, they would still exist today. That tells you this. The Lord's saying that Sodom would have repented and it would have been a lasting work of repentance. You know, part of the problem, I think we ought to have milestones in our life, don't you? I think we do. I think there ought to be things we point to and say, that was a big period of time in my life. That was a big occasion. God did something mighty. But we better uh, beware that our milestones don't become hitching posts. And we get to the place where we think just because we had our heart right with God at one time, we don't ever have to get it right with Him again. Sometimes, you know how people say it? They say, well, got my ticket to heaven. I I seriously worry whether they do or not when they use that kind of language. My ticket to heaven. If, If God saves you, He'll put a love in your heart for Him. You won't always do right. You won't always think right. You won't always say things right. When you do wrong, the Spirit of God will convict you. He'll convict you. And we need to be careful lest these milestones become hitching posts and we just never move on any further. The Lord says this, there ought to be an ongoing act of repentance. You say, how often am I supposed to repent, preacher? Well, every time you sin. You say, well, I couldn't do that. I sin too much. Well, you've got enough of a mind to sin. You'd think you'd have enough of a mind to repent. You know what we want to do? We, we want to we sin retail and then, or wholesale and then we want to confess retail. We, we want to sin on the large scale, and then we want to come to the Lord and say, Well, Lord, forgive me of everything I've done wrong. Hey, listen, if you can't think of everything, I do believe, Lord, forgive you. I think a lot of times if that's just our cheap way of maintaining some kind of fellowship with the Lord, God's smarter than us. You know that? We're not going to deceive Him. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. So we see what is required is repentance. But then I want you to notice finally, and I'm done, what is reckoned. The Lord says, one day you're going to face a judgment. And on that day, God's going to find some things out to be true about you that you would never think. And I want you to notice they're embodied in these three cities that are mentioned. Now, if you're a history buff, then you know what these cities are because they're pretty famous, pretty important cities in the landscape of human history. And the first one that he mentions is a city by the name of Tyre. Uh, there upon the coast in the northwest uh, area of, of the... Uh, of Israel. It was a Gentile city, uh, but it was one of the most important port cities of antiquity. And Tyre was a city that was famed for its strength, situated with part of the city on land and another part of the city about a half mile out from land upon an island. It took Alexander the Great uh, two years to sack and destroy the city of Tyre. Alexander the Great had probably one of the most capable armies in human history, and it took him two years to defeat that great port city. They were famed for being impenetrable and being strong. You know what the Lord says about Capernaum? It says, one of these days when you stand accountable to the Lord, God's going to look at you in a worse light than He looks at Tyre. wonder why God, why Tyre didn't ever repent. There were times when they had a spiritual influence. In fact, at one point, Hiram, the king of Tyre, uh, sent cedars of Lebanon uh, to David that he might build a house for himself and a house for the Lord. They had somewhat of a godly influence, but still they were a pagan city. You know why that is? Because they were prideful in their strength. 
They believed as a poor city that was impenetrable by human army that they did not have to bend or bow before anyone and certainly not before the God of the Jews. And so they rejected the word of truth. Strength has sent a lot of people to hell. That's not a deep statement. That's just true. Personal strength, the strength of resolve, the strength of will, self-dependence and independence... This notion, and listen, I, 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 thank, I thank the Lord that we live in a country that at least ought to be about independence. But when it comes to the Christian walk, my friend, it's not about independence. It's about absolute dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. There's been lots of folks that live their life, they've done their thing, no one's going to tell them what to do, no one's going to run them, nobody's going to make them do anything, and that includes the Almighty God of heaven. And the Lord says this about Capernaum, Capernaum, I see that you are more prideful in your strength than the ancient city of Tyre was. More prideful in their strength. Man, they, I mean, they really thought they were somebody. They were Jews. They were Jews of Jews. <laughs> in fact, it said, a lot of folks believe, and I sort of lean this way, uh, that the city of Capernaum uh, was uh, named thus because it was the home city of the prophet Nahum. Capernaum being the hometown of the prophet that pronounced the destruction of one of the greatest cities of antiquity. They felt like they were somebody. Sometimes, I don't know how to say it any plainer, we just get to feeling like we're somebody. We just get to feel like we're somebody. Nobody's going to make us do. Nobody's going to run us. Nobody's going to lead us. We're going to do our own thing. You know, that's what Satan said. He said, I will exalt myself against the Most High. I will arise. I will exalt myself against the Most High. He said, I'll do it my way. Well, he did things his way, and look at where it got him. You do things your way, there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. So he says about Capernaum that concerning Tyre, you are more prideful in your strength than them. But then there's the ancient city of Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were sort of sister cities. And if it was the responsibility of Tyre to maintain the military aspect of their small empire, it was the uh, uh, responsibility of Sidon to uh, maintain the economic aspect of their empire. And being a port city, any port city was always a wealthy city, but particularly the city of Sidon was. The things that would come from the other end of the Mediterranean, Spain and the far reaches of the Roman Empire and the ancient Grecian Empire could not make their way to the east except they came through the port city of Sidon. And so she had maintained and accumulated a vast amount of wealth. If you were to go to Sidon, you would have seen uh, the aristocrats, the elites, those that are clothed in long, fine garments with rings on their hands, with a golden cup in their hand, with not a care in the world. And as such, they lent themselves to paganism and heathenism because they didn't need God. They were self-sufficient. The Lord says about Capernaum, you are more preoccupied in your substance than the ancient city of Sidon was. Money's not bad. Let me say that again. Money's not bad. One of the most misquoted portions of Scripture. The Word of God never says that money is the root of all evil. Never says that. If your Bible says that, then you need to get a new Bible. Amen? It says the love of money is the root of all evil. That's true, by the way. You look at society, and I don't care what aspect of sin it is, the reason it exists is somebody makes a dollar off of it. But money intrinsically in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's not wrong. But how easy it is to get preoccupied with money. There's been lots of folks that were, man, they're busy serving the Lord. 
then all of a sudden a new job came along, a new business venture, a new business prospect came along. All of a sudden, folks, that was dedicated, that loved the Lord, that never missed His house. All of a sudden, you see them maybe two Sunday mornings out of a month. They're gone. They're AWOL. All that for a silly paycheck. That rust, that moths corrupt, that thieves break in and steal. I'm not against money. I'm not against wealth. And I'm not a big proponent and advocate of, of poverty necessarily. The Bible says that the poor you'll have with you always. Our president doesn't like that. He said as much. But that's the truth. The poor you'll have with you always. I don't think the Lord looks up or down on a man for what's in his wallet unless what's in his wallet has a hold of him. And the Lord says about Capernaum, you're more preoccupied with your substance than the ancient city of Sodom was. And then finally, and I'm done, he mentions the city of Sodom. Sodom was one of the most decadent, wicked... And, and uh, I'm going to make a word up here. Is that okay? Debaucheristic. Is that a word? Somebody Google it because I know you're playing on Facebook anyway. You might as well Google it. One of the most wicked cities of all history. And the Lord says this astounding fact. Capernaum, it's going to be easier on Sodom in the day of judgment. Now, can I ask you something? What if God said that about you or me? We wouldn't believe that, would we? We'd say, no, Lord, but we'd have to believe it. He's God Almighty. Because our ways are not His ways, and our thoughts are not His thoughts. The Lord looked at Sodom and saw a city way back in antiquity, bathed and born in pagan darkness. And then He looked at Capernaum, a city that had had every privilege and every possibility of any of the cities in the nation of Israel. And He said, one day when you both stand before an almighty God, He's going to have more mercy on Sodom than He has on you. In fact, you know what He says? He doesn't just say God's going to show more mercy. He says it's going to be more tolerable. More tolerable. You know what that means, right? They're going to tolerate the day of judgment better than you're going to tolerate the day of judgment. In other words, they're going to come out better than you're going to come out. And why? I would say that they were more polluted in their standards than Sodom and Gomorrah was. Let me tell you, and, I, and I'm not going to say a lot. I'm just going to say something here and then I'm done. There is no group in humanity than the American church today that ought to be living closer to the Lord and ought to be more dedicated and more separated. No group in, in the history of humanity ought to be walking closer to the Lord than you and I ought to be. We have more light today, more privilege today. We've seen the effects of sin more today. I mean, listen, you can go, you can go uh, two miles in this city and you can see some of the ma biggest mansions that you could ever uh, see and you'll see unhappiness and sorrow and depression. You can go down to the mission and see people that don't even have a roof over their head and see what sin has done to their life. I'm saying that we can see sin at both ends of the spectrum. We can see how that sin ravages a human being. We're going to answer for that one day. We're going to answer for that. We're going to stand before God and give an account for the things that we've seen and heard and done. And on that day, you know what I think the Lord would say to us? On that day, you'd be better off to be one of these living in the darkest of Africa and hedonism and paganism. You'd be better off to be one of these born into militant Islam if you're going to reject the Word of God. 
Because one of these days, everything that God's given us, we're going to give an account for. So I wonder, you and I, I wonder what He'd say about us. I tend to believe if the Word of God penetrates our hearts, we'll be honest about that question. But until it does, we won't be. But maybe God's touched your heart today about the things you've been blessed with, privileged with. Maybe God has brought a sermon back to your mind that God has spoken to you through. But in some way, God may have dealt with you today. You say, oh, I'm pretty good. Listen to me, if you say that, then you're the very one this is preached to. You're the very one this is preached to. So, oh, man, I, I grew up in a good home. I did. Grew up in a good home. Grew up in a godly home. I grew up in a good church. I'm going to answer for that one day. We don't only get to reap the benefits of it. We have to give an account for it. Maybe you're here today and God's touched your heart. You'd like to come and deal with Him as He's dealt with you.